heard daily, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. It is almost 6.30 p.m. Stay tuned for Radio Gag, Gays Against Guns, coming up. Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Good evening, everybody. And welcome to Radio Gag, the weekly Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. We are Gays Against Guns. I'm Bridget. I am Jake. And I'm Paul. And this week on Radio Gag, we are talking about assassinations, targeted killings, motivated for political reasons, and as we will learn, for often far more banal reasons. And we hear about the historical impact of assassinations on our gun control laws. Dig into what people, what makes people want to shoot other people, especially famous people. Um, but first of all, as we do every week, we're going to start the show with an in memoriam where we honour a person we have lost to gun violence. In this case, an educator, an activist assassinated by our own government. I might be in jail, I might be anywhere, but when I leave, you remember I said, with the last words on my lips, that I am a revolutionary, and you're going to have to keep on saying that. You're going to have to say that I am a proletarian. I am the people. Fred Hampton was an American activist and revolutionary. Described as a remarkable and gifted political organizer, he was a natural leader who brought different racial and ethnic groups together to create strong alliances to fight injustice. He was born in 1948 in Summit, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. He was an ambitious child, gifted both in the classroom and in athletics, especially on the baseball field where he dreamed of becoming a center fielder for the New York Yankees. He became involved in the civil rights struggle at 15 when he organized a chapter of the NAACP at his high school and assumed leadership of the youth council of the organization's West Suburban branch. By becoming involved with the NAACP, Hampton hoped to achieve social change through organizing and nonviolent activism. He worked to improve recreational facilities that existed in the surrounding neighborhoods and raised educational resources for the city's black community. After graduating from high school with honors, Hampton briefly attended Triton Junior College, where he majored in pre-law, planning to become more familiar with the legal system, which he planned to use to defend himself and others against police brutality. After leaving school, he moved to Chicago and became involved with the Black Panther Party. Within a year, he was leader of the Chicago chapter, where he organized weekly rallies, taught political education classes every morning at 6 a.m., and launched a project for community supervision of the police. Perhaps his most significant contribution was a non-aggression pact he negotiated between Chicago's most powerful street gangs. Hampton, with his gifts as an orator and his personal charisma, persuaded the gangs that racial conflicts between them would keep its members entrenched in poverty. The alliance of these gang members, united within the Black Panther Party, would double the size of the organization. While Fred Hampton's star was on the rise in the Black Panther Party, the FBI's COINTEL program was in full swing. Starting in 1969, leaders of the Black Panther Party were targeted by the COINTEL Pro and neutralized by being imprisoned, publicly humiliated, or falsely charged with crimes. On December 4, 1969, Fred Hampton and members of the party returned to his apartment from a local church after attending a political education course led by Hampton. At 4 a.m., 14 heavily armed Chicago police officers, who had been working with the FBI, stormed the apartment. Mark Clark, 
sitting in the front room with a shotgun in his lap, was on security duty. He was shot in the chest and died instantly. After police forced Hampton's fiancée, Deborah Johnson, who was nine months pregnant at the time, out of the bedroom they shared, two officers entered the room where Hampton still lay. She heard one officer ask, is he still alive? After two gunshots were fired inside the room, the other officer replied, he's good and dead now. During the assault, in which 99 shots were fired by the police, Hampton never even woke up. Earlier that evening, he'd been given psychobarbital, a sleeping drug, by an FBI informant planted in the party who had prepared them dinner. In the aftermath, police described a fierce gun battle with members of the Black Panther Party. But ballistic experts found that only one bullet came from the Panther's side, most likely fired after Mark Clark had been fatally shot in the heart and was falling to the ground. The, quote, bullet holes in the front door of the apartment, which police pointed to as evidence that the Panthers had been shooting from within, were actually nail holes created by police to support their story. As Fred Hampton himself said shortly before his death, there have been many attacks made upon the Black Panther Party, so we feel it's best to be an armed propaganda unit. But the basic thing is to educate. Hampton wanted to move toward a world where one could teach others about racial injustice without needing to defend oneself. The FBI may have murdered the man behind that vision, but Hampton's cause, still worthy, lives on. Wow. Thank you to Gays Against Guns member Tricia Cook for that in memoriam. That's just horrific, actually, to be drugged and shot 99 times in your sleep by authorities. By your own government. Unbelievable. All right. Well, next up, we have the weekly gag news from the gun violence prevention movement. Yes, from the from the shenanigans of our elected representatives in the 1960s to the current state of affairs. Kicking off with the news today that special counsel Robert Mueller's team is now looking deeply into connections between Donald Trump's election campaign and the NRA specifically how the relationship was such, uh, first formed, leading to the NRA spending more than $30 million in backing his candidacy. That's more than they spent in all of 2000 and 2012 races combined. In addition to questioning members of the campaign, they have been looking into the relationship between the NRA and confessed Russian agent Maria Putina. Putin has spent years courting the NRA's relationship, le- leadership in an effort to penetrate the U.S. national decision-making apparatus to advance the agenda of the Russian Federation. However, two Senate committees investigating Russian efforts to influence U.S. elections via the Ni- National Rifle Association are currently being led by Republican senators who have repeatedly received substantial campaign support from the NRA, namely Senator Charles Grassley of Iowa, on the Senate Finance Committee and Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina on the Senate State Select Committee on Intelligence. Burr is particularly indebted to the NRA, which has spent more than $7 million in support of his campaigns over the years, putting him among the top recipients of NRA largesse in Congress. Sounds like somebody we're going to have to pay a visit to. (laughs) In other news, the Supreme Court today jumped back into the national debate over gun rights after nearly a decade on the sidelines. The justices 
the justices agreed to consider a petition backed by gun owners groups asking to strike down the New York City's strict rules for carrying legally owned guns outside the home. Currently, New York City rules do not allow gun owners to transport firearms outside city limits, even to practice ranges or second homes. Lower courts have upheld the city's regulations. By agreeing to hear the case, the court ended a string of refusals in Second Amendment cases dating back to its landmark rulings in 2008 and 2010, which upheld the fundamental right to keep guns at home for self-defense. Since then, the justices have refused to hear challenges from gun rights or gun control groups. That has left issues such as assault weapons bans, trigger locks, and the right to carry guns in public up to individual states. With the addition of Associate Justice Brett Kavanaugh, um, into the Supreme Court, which now has four justices who are very strongly committed to robust Second Amendment protections. This case has great potential to limit the ability of state and local governments to pass their own gun control legislation. Absolutely. And it also is very worrying when we think about the concealed carry reciprocity bill that the NRA mm -hmm. are trying to get through the Senate, which would allow people to carry guns across state lines from states with very lax gun laws into states such as New York, which have very tough gun laws. Um, so the share of households that have guns is the single strongest predictor of how many young people commit suicide in a state, a new study shows, published this Thursday in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine. At the state level, gun ownership is strongly linked to youth suicide rates, even after controlling for other factors such as depression, suicide plans and previous suicide attempts. Overall, the youth suicide rate rose 27% with each 10% point increase in household gun ownership. Dr. Michael Siegel said that when a youth attempts suicide, the major determinant of whether they are successful or not is the means they use. We know firearms are highly lethal means, so when someone uses a firearm for a suicide attempt, they're way more likely to be successful. The passage of laws that discriminate against LGBTQ people have been shown to have significant negative impacts on the well-being of gay youth. For example, a study in Taiwan recently reported that 20% of all Taiwanese gay kids have attempted suicide. That's one in five. And while it's difficult to fully estimate the rate of suicide for LGBTQ youth, it is clear that the suicide rates for these kids are terrifying. One CDC report claims that nearly one-third of LGBTQ youth have attempted suicide at least once, compared to 26% of heterosexual youth. That's 29% compared to 6%. And then only this week we hear that the vice president's wife is more than happy to teach at a school that discriminates against young queer students. And finally, we have a quick news report from this weekend's Women's Marches. Let's take a listen. Saturday marked the third annual Women's March, with women and their allies turning out across the country. Gays Against Guns was there. Hey, good morning. I'm Kathy Marino-Thomas from Gays Against Guns. We're here at the third annual Women's March. This is the third time that Gays Against Guns has participated. We went and we took 30 human beings to Washington for the first march honoring women killed in gun violence. Last year we did both marches, New York and D.C. This year again we're in both marches, New York and D.C. And this year we're even at both New York City marches. We have our HBs with us representing women who have been murdered through 
through domestic violence and trans women who are victims of hate over uh, just it's awful how many trans women have been murdered just this year by gun violence so easy access to guns is really not okay and we're doing our best to stop it and one of the ways we're doing it is by following the money now we're going after wells fargo because wells fargo uses your money and gives it to the nra and that's not okay let us remember that a fight means no person left behind. So when people want to stop talking about the issues that black women face, when people want to stop talking about the issues that trans women or immigrant women face, we got to ask them, why does that make you so uncomfortable? Because this is not just about identity, this is about justice, and this is about the America that we are going to bring into this world. And that was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaking in New York City this weekend. Currently, women in the United States are 11 times more likely to be murdered with guns than they are in any other developed nation. The presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide for women by 500%. Wow, just crazy statistics when you, uh, when you break it down. Um, really inspiring weekend, though. It was great, great to see so it many was people great. out. Yeah, it was great. I'm yeah. still getting my voice back. Pardon <laughs> <laughs> me. Bridget, you were definitely on the megaphone this weekend. It was, it was wonderful. Um, as we said at the top of the show, um, this specific uh, focus this week is about assassinations. So an assassination is the targeted killing of a high-profile individual. Uh, while they are very frequently committed by use of firearm, assassinations do not necessarily require a gun. For example, the spate of bomb mailings sent to a collection of famous Democrats and the CNN offices this last October were also assassination attempts. Assassinations are usually carried out against political figures. Four U.S. presidents have been shot and killed while in office, Lincoln, Garfield, McKinley and Kennedy. And assassination attempts have been made on several others, notably among them would be Reagan's attempted assassination in 1981. However, politicians aren't the only public figures who are the target of assassinations. Many activists like uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X and Harvey Milk, who ultimately did become a politician, but was killed less than a year into his first term as San Francisco City Supervisor after passing a bill that banned discrimination based on sexual orientation, have been murdered because of their political views. Within the past 30 years or so, a new class of assassination targets has arisen. Abortion providers, including David Gunn, John Britton and George Tiller, who were all shot and killed by heavily, air-quoted, pro-life activists. Assassinations are different from other killings because of the publicity that surrounds their targets. They typically generate national conversations. And up until recently, they even had the power to pressure Congress to enact sensible gun control legislation, as Jake is about to tell us. Yes. So while the NRA's stranglehold, stranglehold over American politics can make it hard to imagine today, there was actually a time when Congress could pass sensible gun control laws, uh, kind of. So federal gun control legislation has almost always been the result of a national gun-related tragedy. And today, in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which we just celebrated on Monday, yesterday, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Gun Control Act of 1968, which was enacted in part as a response to his assassination. The bill fell short of true gun control in America, obviously, um, but it remains one of the foundational elements of modern gun, modern gun safety. So before guns were politicized the way that they are today, gun control legislation was actually fairly commonplace and generally well received or at least tolerated. 
Prior to the 20th century, local ordinances were enacted to prevent a variety of gun-related offenses, from firing a gun while drunk to possessing a firearm in a crowded place. Prior to the Gun Control Act, there were also two existing federal-level gun control bills, the, Nat the National Firearms Act of 1934 and the Federal Firearms Act of 1938. However, both of them had significant holes that limited their effectiveness. So after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, Congress began considering new legislation that could allow for stronger monitoring of gun sales and prevent the spread of weapons that have no other purpose than to harm another human. Um, the legislation would later become the Gun Control Act of 1968. So when the measures initially hit the House floor, the national outrage over the Kennedy assassination was so great that even the NRA publicly supported it, which is hard to imagine, but it is true. Um, so the only thing is that this version of the GCA failed to gain traction, so it actually took five more years, and then after the back-to-back -back assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, that the bill was able to just barely pass through Congress. It was actually stalled twice in both the House and the Senate, and then it passed just barely. Um, so the GCA essentially replaced the existing nas national gun control laws, and it contained three major additions. So it required that all gun sellers be federally registered and that all gun sales be made through those federally registered dealers. It prevented the sale of firearms to felons, drug users, and people mentally unfit to carry one. And it required that all new guns made or imported to the United States be inscribed with a serial number. And all of these things are still true today. Um, the requirements on federal licensing for gun sales also effectively outlawed ordering guns over the mail and placed several restrictions on interstate gun sales. So uh, this version of the GCA also faced a lot of backlash, especially from conservationists, um, because they were worried that it would really uh, interrupt the hunting industry. So as a result, Congress created a sporting purposes standard, which still exists today again, and that allowed a lot of firearms that could be readable, readily adaptable for sport, which would include hunting and target shooting, to skirt a lot of the, the provisions included. And when the bill finally passed, President Johnson actually said that it, quote, still fell short, and Time magazine described it as better than nothing, predicting with a grim accuracy that it may take another act of horror to push really effective gun curbs through Congress. However, the GCA still persists as the country's foundational gun control law. In 1986, it was blunted by the Firearms Owners Protection Act, which prevents the government from keeping a registry that could link individual firearms to their owners. But it was also later bolstered in 1993 by the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, which notably was also created in response to an attempted assassination of a president, Ronald Reagan. The Brady Act mandates that background checks for individuals purchasing firearms uh, have to be taken at the point of purchase and also further define the reasons a person might be deemed unfit to possess one, which has successfully prevented over a million firearm sales since its passage. Interestingly, at the time of its passage, the NRA called the GCA reasonable, but in 2011, they redefined their position, calling its provisions draconian. Even in 1968, President Johnson displayed incredible clarity about the danger of the gun lobbying industry. He declared, the voices that blocked these safeguards were not the voices of an aroused nation. They were the voices of a powerful lobby, a gun lobby that has prevailed for the moment. And here at Gays Against Guns, I think we all agree it is about time for their moment to be up. Another 40 plus year moment. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that, Jake. It's super fascinating to see the way these things evolve. Bridges. So we have a little piece to begin for you, a 
case study that was done about the psyche of an assassin, and we'd like you to listen to some right now. Who got shot? John Lennon. John Lennon. A white man. He was big, and he was arguing with the the doorman. And then all of a sudden, he heard five, six shots, and that was it. I heard this voice. Not an audible voice, but an inaudible voice saying over and over, do it, do it, do it, do it. I guess that was me inside. And I pulled the 38 revolver out of my pocket. I went into what's called a combat stance. And I fired at his back five steady shots. He's talking to a nobody, just signed an album for a nobody. I thought by killing him, I would acquire his fame. His day was spent polishing a skill he learned in a California public high school. I decided to go in the, to, the, to the firing range and, and shoot my gun. And I spent the whole day over there. It was really a good uh, sort of an NRA type of a get-together at the gun range. And that's really the, 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 my, my, my original interest in, in acquiring the gun, not shooting Robert Kennedy. The Exceptional Case Study Project is a little-known study by the Secret Service. Robert Fine worked with the Secret Service as a forensic psychologist in the mid-80s. In the space of 18 months, four situations came to the attention of the Secret Service, he says. In two of these incidents, people with weapons and an intent to kill appeared at public events. In the other two incidents, the would-be assassins were intercepted before the events happened. Ultimately, all four cases were prosecuted. Two were convicted, two were sent to psychiatric facilities. Fine says, though the government didn't exactly advertise it. These were not stories that hit the news, but they were situations that caused great concern for protectors. So after these incidents, the Secret Service leadership got together and said, we really need to know more about the behaviors of these people. So Fine and Secret Service agent Brian Voskel undertook the most extensive study of assassins and would-be assassins ever done. They went in with a particular pitch. They would say to these assassins, we're here because we're in the business of trying to protect people and prevent these kinds of attacks. You are the one of the few experts because you've engaged in this behavior. We would like to talk to you to understand your perspectives and your life. Most said they'd be very glad to talk. Assassins and attackers, described in the project, ranged from a teenage girl with unhealthy celebrity infatuation to a radical white right-wing group. The 83 subjects studied were people known to have attacked or who have come close to attacking a p prominent public figure in the United States between 1949 and 1996. In 1999, the pu they published their results in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. Contrary to popular assumptions about public killings, the attackers didn't conform to any particular democratic demographic profile. But when Fine reconstructed their patterns of thinking, he was able to distill them into a handful of recurring motives for killing a public person, motives that seemed consistent regardless of whether a given individual was delusional or not, and three-quarters of those who pulled the trigger were not delusional. Perhaps the most interesting finding is that, according to Fine and Foskell, assassinations of political figures were almost never for political reasons. It was very, very rare for the primary motive to be political, though there were a number of attackers who appeared to clothe their motivations with some political rhetoric, Fine says. 
What emerged from the study is that rather than being politically motivated, many assassins and would-be assassins simply felt invisible. In the year before their attacks, most struggled with acute reversals and disappointments in their lives, which the paper argues was the true motive. They didn't want to see themselves as non-entities. They experienced failure after failure after failure and decided that rather than being a nobody, they wanted to be a somebody. They chose political targets then because political targets were a sure way to transform this situation. They would be known. Some hoped to achieve notoriety by killing a well-known person. Others wanted to end their pain by killing, being killed by the Secret Service. Still others hoped to avenge a perceived idiosyncratic grievance unrelated to mainstream politics. Some hoped unrealistically to save the country or call attention to a cause. And some hoped to achieve a special relationship with the person they were killing. For instance, John Hinckley believed that by killing Ronald Reagan, he would get the attention, respect, and love of Jodie Foster. One thing they say about choosing a political figure, as opposed to choosing a show business celebrity, is that the would-be assassins are able to associate themselves with a broader polit political movement or goal. That allows them to see themselves not as such a bad person. In this way, assassins are basically murderers in search of a cause. For example, there was one guy who was fixated on his governor until he heard that the vice president was coming to his area. He said he had not read enough to know that there hadn't been anybody who had attempted to assassinate a sitting vice president, so he made the vice president his target. He told the researchers he thought he'd get more attention from historians. He said the books on assassination, there might even be a whole chapter about him. Another assumption people make about assassins is that they're insane, people completely divorced from reality. But this study, to a degree, rejects that idea as too simplistic. The way these people sought to address what they saw as their main problems, anonymity and, f and failure, wasn't inherently crazy. There's nothing crazy about thinking that if I attack the president or a major public official, I'll get a lot of attention. The goal was no notoriety, Fine says. That's why they bought a weapon. And most of the assassins and would-be assassins weren't totally disorganized by mental illness either. They were quite organized because one has to be organized, at least to some extent, to attack a public official. Martin Luther King's assassin, James Earl Ray, escaped from maximum security prison in, <clears throat> and however it might have been fame rather than freedom he was seeking. He was very upset that he had not landed on the Federal Bureau of Investigation's most wanted list. Mark Chapman believed he was a failure. Chapman became obsessed with being a nobody, felt betrayed by cultural figures that he saw as phonies, and saw John Lennon as the biggest phony of all. In September of 1980, Chapman decided to kill John, Al John Lennon. Or he could have been driven by another motive, say notoriety, suicide, or calling attention to a cause. These meltdowns are common in the year preceding an attack. Nearly half of the assailants in the Secret Service study lost their marriage, job, health, or a loved one. The disintegration set them into another path. The unthinkable gradually, gradually became thinkable, and the assailant in the making developed tunnel vision around a single obsession. The Secret Service prefers to spot people early on and, if possible, guide them on a different path without resorting to handcuffs. A suspicious letter to a prominent official is likely to generate a knock on the door from Secret Service agents. These agents, after sitting down in the living room, are likely to afford the letter writer a kind of polite listening that normally might cost $150 in a therapist's office as they assess whether he or she represents a threat. Far more people are investigated, examined, and spoken with rather than actually end up being hospitalized. 
Sometimes the person of concern is referred to, for mental health services. Other times the Secret Service agents themselves continue to engage the person with frequent, vi frequent visits and calls. Fine tells of one letter he read written by a person of concern to the Secret Service agent charged with preventing him from harming, harming a government figure. The letter was addressed to Agent Smith, my only friend in the whole world. Uh, thanks, Bridget. Um, you just never really know, <laughs> I guess, what's going on in somebody's mind. Well, it um, seems that getting their name in the newspapers or getting themselves killed by the Secret Service is the goal. Yeah. So as we have, as we do every week, we've run out of time. So we're going to uh, encourage you to find out more about our work on gaysagainstguns.net. And we're going to play out with our quartet, Sing Out Louise. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was Radio Gag, Gays Against Guns, and it's heard right after the WBAI Evening News, 6.30 on Tuesdays. Stay tuned for First Voices Radio with Teokas and Ghost Horse coming up at the 7 p.m. hour, followed by Green Street with Doug and Patty Wood at 8 p.m. 9 p.m. is...